Hi there. I want to invite you to a super special free live training that I am giving with my friends at QGive on Thursday, July 21st, all about creating a future-proof nonprofit social media strategy. You can register right now for free at www.bit.ly forward slash QGive and Julia. Once again, www.bit.ly forward slash QGive, Q-G-I-V and Julia. You don't want to miss this free webinar. You can also go to the show notes of this episode and click the link to register. You're going to learn all about how to navigate upcoming digital changes, the four pillars of social media management, actionable ways to engage your community and more. See you on July 21st. Hello, and welcome to Nonprofit Nation. I'm your host, Julia Campbell, and I'm going to sit down with nonprofit industry experts, fundraisers, marketers, and everyone in between to get real and discuss what it takes to build that movement that you've been dreaming of. I created the Nonprofit Nation podcast to share practical wisdom and strategies to help you confidently find your voice, definitively grow your audience, and effectively build your movement. If you're a nonprofit newbie or an experienced professional who's looking to get more visibility, reach more people, and create even more impact, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hello, welcome back to the Nonprofit Nation podcast. I'm your host, Julia Campbell. Really excited to be here with all of you today. We're going to talk about donor relations, donor retention. We're going to talk about copywriting and all the things. And I have my friend, Julie Edwards here. A lot of you probably know Julie. For 11 years, Julie was immersed in the world of animal welfare as the director of development and marketing, and then the executive director of a regional selective admission facility. And I just learned what that was. (laughs) And throughout her tenure, she learned from the best in the field and used this knowledge to take the organization to the next level, including overseeing the expansion of public clinical services to $1 million plus in annual revenue. So Julie built the organization's development and marketing communications program really from the ground up, taking annual gifts from less than 200K to more than 1 million. So she has a lot of gems of wisdom to share with us today. So Julie, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. Yes. Well, why don't you tell us how you got into this work and then some of the things you're doing now? So my actual professional background before nonprofit world was in marketing communications and public relations. When the downturn of 2008-9, I was actually working for an organization that worked in the construction and remodeling industry, which was one of the industries that was really hit hard with that particular recession. <laughs> so I lost my job. I was unemployed the whole year of 2009, which was the year I turned 40. So that was, you know, a great birthday gift. That was the year I was actually laid off eight months yeah, ago yeah. with my daughter. <laughs> Yeah, that was a great year for a lot of people. But the job came up in a a site of mission facility as a humane society or an animal welfare facility, but shelter, whatever you want to call it, it does not euthanize on on a regular basis. But the job came open and 
it was a director of development marketing and I threw my hat in the ring and I got the job. And honestly, I was a little daunted because I had never done fundraising. I knew I had the marketing part nailed down, but I really quickly realized that, and this may hurt some people's feelings, but all fundraising is a sales. I mean, you are selling your mission your, what you do as an organization to your to your donor, who is your customer. And once I realized that fundraising is sales and your donor is your customer and me having my background in marketing, it was like, oh, you know, the light bulb went off. And I thought, I can do this because I can do marketing really well. It made such sense to me after that. And so, uh, you know, I spent four years as the director of development marketing. And then when our long tenured executive director retired, I um, took that position in an interim position and then, and then permanently and, uh, you know, the organization had sort of treaded water for many years, done well, but not excellent. I was the first ED. I started going to conferences, as you mentioned. I think my first conference was in 2016, was Cause Camp, where I met great people like John Hayden, rest in peace, my good friend, Tom Ahern, you know, who is the great-grandfather, I shouldn't say great-grandfather, great as in good, not great as in older. <laughs> Don't hate me, Tom. But, the, you know, the grandfather of donor relations, and it talked about things like donor love and loving up your donors. And it just all was so like, I never heard of that before. It was this new thing to me, right? So um, started implementing a lot of those things in our work at the Humane Society as we went, which we can talk a bit more later about how you do that. And uh, within a three to four year period, we saw our, our fundraising increase from $400,000 to 1.2 million. So about 300%. And I attribute the large majority of that to the donor relations slash stewardship work that we were doing, because that was really the only thing that we did that was significantly different than what we had been doing before. In 2020, again, you know, with COVID and the recession, and I had been at the Humane Society for 11 years at that time, nonprofit in general is a very difficult field to work in. That particular branch of nonprofit, you know, is very exhausting, PTSD sort of exhausting. You see a lot of really bad things. I remember you telling me about some of those at John's house, I believe. Yeah, it's very wearing on your soul in a lot of ways. And I also, you know, it's to the point where I felt like I'd done everything I could do there. And I wanted to take what I had, had done there and apply it to helping other nonprofits that were maybe small to middle-sized nonprofits that needed that help to sort of push themselves to the next level. Because I think there's a ton of good that can be done in the world. But, you know, nonprofits just, and we're talking about Dan Pelota later, but, you know, don't always have the time or the resources to do that. And sometimes just hiring someone to help you get over that hump, you know, to, to get to that next level can really be helpful. And so that's why I started doing consulting work, which I hate the word consulting because it always helps I do too. We've got to find a new word because, especially because you've been on the nonprofit side and I have too, and you probably remember working with consultants and it may or may not have been the best experience. And I feel like it does have a negative connotation. They do. I think I 100% agree with that. Yes, yeah, exactly like you have it on both sides of the coin. You know, there are some some people out there who, who say they're consultants and, and charge a whole lot of money and don't really have a whole lot of return. And unfortunately, you don't always know that until you're in the mix with them. And I'm very conscious about that as a consultant that I, you know, I'm very... I'm probably overly touchy-feely with my clients and, and too open with them and direct, but I, you know, that I deliver on what I say because it's important to me having been on the other side. I know that feeling of, especially when you don't have a big budget, that you're investing in someone to help you, that you get that return on that investment. Right. And it can be such a risk. So let's talk about donor relations. So do you think that 
donor relations, donor, I should say retention matters now more than ever. And, you know, and, and I will tell you why, because I was doing some research recently on stewardship, donor relations, and um, with COVID, you know, the past couple of years and everybody being at home, the pandemic, you know, over 2019, 2020, giving in the U.S. increased by like almost 11%, which is huge. That's just so phenomenally amazing to me. Yeah, and I mean, and it sounds small, but when you talk about 2020, the get, the get, or 2019, the giving in the States was $450 billion, that is a B, dollars, you know, an increase of 11% is a lot of money. And donors also increased by like over 7%. So that's what I love. I love that the number of donors increased. But, but. Oh no, <laughs> but it's a leaky bucket. Oh no. The donor retention rate dropped 4%. So half of the people basically that came on board were lost. And that again is huge. Think about $450 billion and what those people were getting. And less, even though sort of the same amount of money to a certain degree is being given, there's less people giving that money. So, you know, you have to really strive to hold on to the donors that you have and make sure that you're you know, stewarding them in all the best ways possible so they continue to give to you. <laughs> so in your experience, why do you think donors stop giving? And I, I think this is so important for nonprofits to understand because we have the curse of passion. We have the curse of knowledge. We think we're doing great work. We're putting our heads down. Maybe we're releasing an annual report once a year, but why do donors stop giving? And I think you really hit the nail on the head there, Julia, is I think a lot of people in the nonprofit world, and I did too for a while, think that we're doing the work and the money should just fall out of the sky. People should just give us the money because we're out here doing the good work and they should just know we're doing the good work, right? They should just know that. <laughs> people don't know that. And the number one reason why donors stop giving is they don't know how their gift is being used. They don't know what you're doing with their money. You have to tell them what you're doing with their money. And that requires you having to toot your own horn, which is very uncomfortable for people, and especially nonprofits, because you feel like you shouldn't have to do that because of the charitable aspect of your organization. But at the same time, you do have to do that in order to keep your organization you know, going. It's sort of a juxtaposition in your head, but if you can get past that, I'll be honest, it took me a minute to get past that. I had to really talk myself through that and toot your own horn. But you really can't think of it as tooting your own horn. You have to think of it as, I am letting the people that entrust us with their money to for our mission know how I'm using their money to the best benefit to help whatever this cause is. And you don't, can't think about it as you know, self-praise, but as donor stewardship. And when you think of it as donor stewardship and that you owe them that to a certain degree, like that's their receipt that they want, their, their receipt of feels, you know, it becomes a lot easier to do it, I think. When you were the director of development marketing and then the executive director at this, the Regional Humane Society, you took annual gifts from under 200K to more than $1 million. And I know a lot of people are kind of probably chomping at the bit to know what are some of the strategies that you used to accomplish this? You know, the first year so I was a donor of development, I mean, the director of development and marketing, I'll be honest, when I came on board the facility, they had seven events and no traditional fundraising. So basically I was an event coordinator. So I spent my first several years. First I think a lot of people can <laughs> empathize. <laughs> I, I will. I basically got rid of all of their events and came up with two new events. 
a gala, which they did not have, like a higher end event to attract a certain level of donor. And then we had an event within the shelter. And so, you know, over the years, because, you know, we all know events is not where money is. That's where that's more friend raising and then than fundraising. And then also it's just building the marketing program as far as they didn't have a Facebook presence. And, and, and I'm a big believer in focusing on one thing and doing it really, really well than trying to spread yourself too thin. And at that time, you know, Facebook, and to, to a certain degree, Facebook is still where it's at, market social media wise. And uh, it really depends on your donor, I know. But I just really focused on Facebook and building that audience and, you know, and continuing to build that audience. So didn't do a whole lot. What we did put into place was a direct mail program, which they had never had. And for many, many, many years, that is where a lot of our donor acquisition came from. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later as well. So really, the first couple of years was sort of, quote, easy because they had nothing. So putting anything into place sort of made it happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was right. Just, like, Anything's just, better than nothing. Yeah. Like, we're here. Give us money. But then, you know, at a certain point, yes, you have to start. So again, when I became ED in sort of the first couple of years, we had to do some, some restructuring, reorganization of the house internally. And then when I turned my focus much more so toward the fundraising, Again, at that time, we were around $400,000 a year in fundraising. And uh, again, started going to conferences and learning from the great people out there and really, again, started putting that into play. And, and I don't know how much you want me to go into like steps at this point. Yes, <laughs> you can. Oh, I know. My people love steps. Yeah, so so you know, when we, we went to our first conference again in 2016, and it was cause camp. And I went at that time, I took my director of development, who was very newly hired. She'd only been there five months. And she did not have a development background either. She had a sales background. And again, that goes back to sometimes I think it's better to hire a development person who has sales experience because people who have sales experience know how to sell and you can teach them the development part of it. So we went to the conference and it was like lots of light bulb moments, as I said. And we sat down on the last day and I said, if I'm going to pay and use our organization's resources for us to go to conferences, we are not going to go back and forget all that. I mean, I see so many organizations do that. They come out this next year, they have the same problems. And I said, so we literally sat down and wrote down our top takeaways, me and my development director independently. And we sort of did as what could we do in three months, six months, a year. Then we compared them. And a lot of our top takeaways were the same. And we literally plotted out like, what are we going to do in the next three months? What are we going to do in the next six months? What are we going to do in the next year? Until we come back to our next conference. And some of that was based upon, it was based upon resources also to a certain degree. So what do we have the money to do? What do we have the time and staff to do? But we slowly just started implementing steps. Now, those steps can be different for every organization. You sort of have to look at where, you know, what you already have in place and what, you, you know, some things you make and grow upon, some things you have to put in brand new. I will say that we didn't use the time because we didn't know what we know, what we knew later. You had to focus on one thing, as we just said, above anything else. If you were just starting a donor relations program, it is your first time donors, period, nonstop. Because again, as we talked about, retention is so poor. And, you know, if you can get them to make a second gift, their retention rate rises from 20% to 60%. It triples. So, you know, if you do nothing else, if you want to put some new effort into something, I would say put that new effort into stewarding your first-time donors, and there are different ways to do that. But again, we just slowly started building upon that. And as our, and I'll be honest, as our money rose, I added staff. So we added the development coordinator like a year or two later. We added, I had two marketing team members. But even when I left the organization, it was me, 
two development people and two marketing people, and we were doing everything. So, um, and again, at 1.2 million with two events, two major events a year, all the grants, all the direct mail, everything was being done by that team. Yeah. So it, it is possible to do with a smaller team. You don't have to have a huge team, but. But you have to be strategic and intentional. Strategic, yes. Strategic and intentional. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> I, I love that. That's what I teach because, you know, I teach a lot about social media. So it's so hot. It's so easy to spin your wheels, grasp at shiny objects and lose a whole day and not know what you did. But I love what you said about actually investing, first of all, in staff to build your capacity, then investing in professional development, but not just investing for the sake of it, really being tactical and taking away certain things. And of course, you probably took... 20 pages of notes, and then maybe three pages were actually actionable. And that happens. It spurs ideas. But you created this action plan where you said, okay, we're going to see what is going to be feasible for the next three months, six months, a year. And I wish that, I really wish more nonprofits would do that and look at it as an investment in their growth. Absolutely. And I know, I will will say this, two two tangents. First of all, Boards are hard. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I know it is hard to um, sometimes, you know, sway your board to making that kind of investment. And I know it is trite, but it is true. You have to invest money to make money. You absolutely have to. You have to invest in your people and not only in salaries and hiring them, but also in, in, in growing and learning more things. Because if you don't, if we hadn't went to the conferences we did and learned what we did, we would not have made the money we did. I, I feel confident about that. I'll also say that, you know, on a slightly different note, I met so many awesome nonprofit consultants at these conferences like you, Rachel Muir, again, Tom Ahern, John Hayden, you know, I could make a long list and I became friendly with them. And the reason I did was because I would report back to them like we had success with your methods. And it was always shocking to me that they would be surprised that we actually did stuff because they would be like, yes, or we don't hear, we know we don't hear a lot unless you're working one-on-one with a client. But if you're speaking, it's very hard. I love, 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 love when people say, I listened to a random podcast or Facebook live that you did. And I implemented one or two things from it and it really worked. I mean, I feel like a lot of the time we just don't, we don't know the results of a lot of the things that we, that we teach. And I talked to John about that, but I, I think that's so right. And then you start to become a case study and an example for other organizations because you've had the success and that's a huge part of the reason why you're trusted because you walked the walk. And some people may know me because literally Rachel Muir and Tom Ahern, I think I'm over all over all of their... Right. Oh yeah. Rachel, definitely. Yeah. Like my examples from when I was at the Humane Society, the things that we did, because, you know, they, again, they, you know, we became, our organization became a case study for them because we're implementing a lot of things that they taught. And not only that, but I'll also say this, you know, I have never met someone in the nonprofit sector consultant that wasn't helpful. Like if I, if I knew if I reached out to you or Rachel or Tom and asked a question, like y'all reply. Now, do I take advantage of that? Heck no. Cause that's rude. Uh, <laughs> in this, in this that's nice. But you know, almost everybody, if you go to conferences, I'll say, you know, reach out to me. I'll give you free 15 minutes. I'll give you free 30 minutes. I took advantage of all of those offers. <laughs> I don't think as many people take advantage of that as they should. They don't. I mean, because people say one person has contacted me about this and you're like, or you're the only person who's contacted me about this. 
And it was shocking to me, but I would come back again from those conferences because everybody would almost always offer that after they're, you know, whoever speaking. And I would go through my notes from that session and I would write down questions and I would reach out to them and say, hey, you know, I really loved your session. I had some questions about what you meant by this or this. Can we set up a time to talk? And again, I think, you know, they really appreciated that. I never got off the subject. Well, it's building relationships, which is a big part to bring it back to donor relations. It's being genuinely curious and interested in people. But use your relationships, use your connections. I mean, not, again, don't be disrespectful to people that are trying to make a living and have a business, but there are tons of free resources out there too if you cannot get to conferences. Downloads and podcasts and webinars and all the things and people, we, you know, these consultants will usually talk to you or answer a question or two. So you don't have to pay. You know, you don't have to pay to go to conferences. There are things you can do to learn that's, that costs nothing. So what are some of the ways that you recommend, like what are some of your best tips on retaining first-time donors? Well, I think, first of all, you have to have that that immediate, you know, they call it a drip campaign. But what that is, is that, you know, a series of emails and or print, depending on how you acquire that donor, communication that goes out to them. And this is beyond the acknowledgement slash receipt. But, you know, within a few days or less, you know, that thank you so much gushy email or, or postcard or letter, welcome them to your family, to your organization. You know, a week or two after that, another letter. Usually that second letter for us was talking about ways that could further engage with us. So like, here's our social media. Here's, you know, this. Here's how you could foster, volunteer, whatever. And then usually there's a third letter or email that went out. And usually that one was about our monthly giving program. So we would talk about, you know, our monthly giving programs or other ways you could financially support us, but it wasn't a hard ask. And then they rolled into our newsletter file after that, and they started getting our direct mail file. So, but you had to take that time up front. And then in the end, we had a somewhat, I won't say it was complicated, but it was, it made sense to us. But, you know, even if a first time donor gave a certain amount, they got a call from me. If they made a, which was like $500, they got a call from me. If they made over $1,000, they got a call from a board member. And there are first time donors that would give gifts that big, believe it or not. And then, you know, and some of them got a call from my director of development. Some of them got a call from my development coordinator. So it was a, it was a tiered <laughs> strategy. But, you know, phone calls were also part of that. And, you know, depending on their gift. And, you know, sometimes we invited them for tours. I mean, I remember in particular one gentleman who, through direct mail, gave a first-time gift of $1,000, which is a lot of money for a first-time gift. I called him and I said, you know, thanked him for the gift. And he, I said, would you like to come for a tour of our facility? He said, absolutely. He brought his wife. I had a board member there. We toured him through the facility. He wound up being a $15,000 a year match gift donor for our annual campaign. And by the time I left the organization- He was testing you with that 1000 By the time I left the organization, he had given us over $65,000 in four years. Oh, yeah. That's such a great story. There are other stories like that too, but that's the one that's always, you know, the one that I remember the, the biggest, <laughs> the most- <laughs> So I, I think the struggle, and you have faced it too, when you first started at this particular organization, is where do we strike the balance between donor retention and acquisition? And I've been a director of development and marketing, and I was actually the volunteer coordinator, so I had three full-time jobs. But where do we strike that balance? And I think it's the answer is probably you need two separate people to do it. <laughs> But how did you strike that balance before you could hire more staff? I mean, if you know anything about fundraising, you know, acquisition is very expensive. And But 
there are basically only two ways I've ever been able to figure out that you can, can acquire donors. And one is through direct mail program and one is organically. And both of those are long haul games. You know, it is going to take you years, but what you can do is when you get those donors is make sure you keep them. So I actually would probably lean more, you know, because retention is also a long game, but, but shorter, like it's probably going to take, I think it took us about a year when we started implementing you know, some of the donor retention strategies to really see that return. And what I mean by that is gifts increasing, frequency of gifts, in, amount of gifts increasing, frequency of gifts increasing, our retention levels increasing. So all of those things increasing. So it took a little bit of time, but not years like acquisition does. But, you know, there's that there's that old children's rhyme about make new friends, but keep the old for one is silver and one is gold. So I'd always say, you know, your, your existing donors are gold, your acquisition donors are silver. <laughs> you need both of them, but you really, you know, I would say, you know, 60 to 70% you need to be focusing on retention and 40 to 30%, 34% you need to focus on acquisition because this is a business and it's easier to keep the customer you have and keep them happy than it is to get new ones, easier and less expensive. And I know that you are an expert in copywriting and communications I want to ask a two-prong question. How often do you recommend that people communicate with their donors? And then sort of what copywriting tips do you have to help retain them, make them feel acknowledged and happy? So again, it took me a while to get over this time, but when I got over it, I realized it was the right thing to do. And I still see so many of my clients and other non and nonprofits in general being really scared about over-communicating with their donors. Let's talk about that. <laughs> and, you know, we sent, for our direct mail, we sent seven appeals and three acquisitions a year and four newsletters. It was a very robust program. And we sent a lot of emails. Now, not during the year, but certainly year in and during certain campaigns, we'd be sending emails multiple times a week. Here's the key. And this, again, goes back to donor relations. If you are stewarding and your, your donors properly and you were you know doing your donor relations properly, you cannot over communicate with them. If you're telling them fluff, if you're, if you're praising yourself, but not in a good way, if you are not communicating at all, then all of a sudden you're asking them for lots of money that does not work. But if you're consistently, you know, in touch with them and telling them how they're helping and their money is making a difference, you really can't, in my opinion, communicate with them too much. And that is the difference. So that is the difference. If you, if you've gone all year and haven't done anything and then you send 50 emails in December, I'd be mad at you too. <laughs> I agree. And this is why I think a lot of giving Tuesday campaigns fail and why a lot of donor acquisition campaigns fail or just a lot of appeals don't do as well because you have to think about I see it as putting deposits in a bank. You can't just withdraw, 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 withdraw and not put deposits in the bank. Is it Tom Ahern? Maybe I, I know other people probably said it, but he said the first time, like you can't treat your donors like ATMs. And that is true. And I will tell a really quick antidote of year. In. So last, last year, year end, I had a client who I won't name, but they're, they're a national organization. And, um, they did not have a great fundraising program. It wasn't horrible, but they, you know, I find that executive directors are usually operationally driven or fundraising driven. And this particular operation, this particular executive director was operationally driven. She was not a fundraising person. And that's fine. There's no insult in that. You know, you, you're, you're either one or the other. I was a fundraising person. So, you know, 
it took me a little bit of swaying, but I remember we got up. I was doing their year-end campaign, the whole thing. For, I started them in September, worked them through mid-January, which, by the way, they exceeded by 55%. Yes, <laughs> yes. I love it. We're learning all the tricks. But we were getting, you know, we, we were doing, so I said, we need to do some stewardship leading up to year-end and giving Tuesday because I hadn't done any. So I was, so we were doing some different things. We sent in a little mini impact reports and other things. And I said, we need to send an email on Thanksgiving. And she said, I don't want to do that. I think it's tried. Everybody sends email Thanksgivings. It's sort of icky to me. And I said, you know what? I understand that. But do you want, want to be the only organization that's not sending one? And I said, and it costs you nothing. You know, you're already paying me. I will write it. You know, your direct development coordinator will set it up cost you nothing. It's only an email. I said, why not send it? She's like, okay, you just do it. So I did it. She got back <laughs> like 12 responses to that email, which she said, I don't know that I've ever gotten a response back the whole time I've worked with this organization from an email because it was just a thanks email. It was just a thanks email. You know, it was like, we so appreciate you, blah, blah, blah. It was very gushy, warm, heartfelt. She was actually, she was actually sort of shocked. And I said, yeah. <laughs> Well, you knew that was going to happen, but she just needed to see it in practice, right? She needed to see it with her own eyes. I can't believe I got an email that didn't ask me for money. I mean, not from them, but just in general. And she said, this was so nice. And other people were like, I needed this today. Thank you for sending this. I mean, and the responses were so positive like that. And that's just a case in point of, you know, don't be scared to send something like that, especially when you're not asking if you're just giving, you know, thanking and giving feedback. People are not used to that. Yeah, they're not. They're not used to it. So what was part two of your question? I now forgot. I'm sorry. Well, you kind of answered it. It was, what are some of your best copywriting strategies? Like, what should we include in these communications? So I have, a, you know, deep feelings about this as well. <laughs> and, and again, I saw this change in myself, but I think that people, you know, in general, and then also when you're asking for money, feel this need to be very professional and very stoic. And like, this is very serious because I'm asking this person to give me money. And I found that that is not the way to be. I think that you shouldn't be unprofessional, obviously, but I like to write like I'm writing to my best friend. I personally structure my, when I have new clients and I'm writing for them, I'm like, this is the way I write. And I need to let you know I write this way because I don't want you to see it and be like, oh, this is not me at all. But I write very warm, very open, very vulnerable. You know, I am not afraid to evoke emotion or even be a little silly because that is how people connect with you. You know, they, they build that, that connection with you. You know, I would, of course, I work for an animal welfare nonprofit again, but, you know, I would use little silly sayings. Like I would be like, you know, you're possum that, you know, related to my field. But then also at the same time, Shannon Doolittle was one of the best people at the time I felt who really was sort of that did a great balance of that silly and fun. And I cribbed a lot of stuff from her, but you know, like I would say things like, you know, you have a heart of gold, solid gold. That was a Shannon Doolittle line. Totally cribbed it. People love that. Yeah. You know, we see, and I would say like, we see your heart in our work every day. We see your oh, heart. I, I actually really day. like that. <laughs> we see your heart, you know, here. And so, you know, it's a very warm feeling and people, you know, and if you think, Read it and read it like you were reading it and think if it makes you feel good and fuzzy, that's what your donors are kind of feeling. Yes. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. And don't let your board read it. <laughs> oh, never write by committee. Don't let anyone see it. Just kind of send it. 
and it's going to get a better response than you think. I don't know where we learned this school of email newsletters where they have to be seven columns and 45 stories, but they have to be written like a high school newspaper. I don't know where we learned it. I mean, and I was on my high school newspaper, but you don't write an email to your donors like that. No, no. I mean, like, you know, I try to write him writing to my, to a friend, to somebody that I love because I do love them in a way, you know I mean? I love them for investing in our mission and believing in us. And I actually farmed that out because I could not get myself having a background. You couldn't be far enough removed from it. I I see that. Having my background in PR and, and marketing communications and having written journalistically and having written B2B publications and a lot of, you know, very business professional things. I could do the letters. I couldn't write long form that way. I just couldn't get it. So I, I farmed that out. I farmed it out to someone who did. And, you know, it was a lot of pictures and a little copy and it was very heartfelt. And even her stuff I would read, I was like, that's a little silly, but it worked by God. <laughs> I think it caught attention, which is really important, but it was unexpected and it wasn't something they've normally seen. And I've worked with a lot of my clients on transitioning this mindset from, like you just said, the stoic, the professional, the talking about the jargon, writing it like it's a press release. And transitioning into writing something that looks like it's from a person <laughs> and is to a person. Yeah. You know, and I also, and I will say this and, and, and this is not for everyone and this is sort of a tangent, but I, I do have a Facebook page. that is my personal Facebook page. I made the choice when I became, when I joined the organization that I was with to not change my page and to allow donors and adopters and volunteers to friend me. And I was very conscious of that. And so I, I did put personal stuff up, but not super personal. And, you know, I had to be conscious of not being profane, profanity or whatever, whatever, you know, to be of what I put up, but it served, served the organization and me well as sort of the head of the organization later and the spokesperson, because I am that person in life. I'm a very big hearted, vulnerable person. And I was always putting up almost daily pictures of me. I mean, you probably remember cuddling using kittens and kissing little dogs and stuff. You were really doing that. I was really doing it. And I, I was like, you know, look at this cute puppy. You need to come adopt it. But you know, I didn't even realize at the time how much of an impact that had on the organization by showing that side of me. And so, and I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that to praise myself, but, you know, just, I guess my point there is make sure that, you know, your social presence lines up with your, the presence of your communication, what you're sending out to people. And I think that's where people miss the boat too. And they could also be, and I see other animal welfare organizations in particular, putting up posts that are not, like, again, we'd be super silly and cutesy on our social media posts. I remember Tom Ahern had a fit one time because, and I stole this from another organization, I ain't gonna lie, but we, it was a National Peanut Butter Day and I had my team write wolf backwards in peanut butter on a on a window and we let these puppies loose and they ran up and started licking the peanut butter off. <laughs> How cute is that though? I mean, that's adorable. And it was, yeah. And it was like, one of, you know, but those kind of things are so, so simple, but, and, and so meaningful. And, um, you know, you don't have to always put up the sad, 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 awful stories. Some things can be silly and fun and, and just show the work you do in a warm, vulnerable, uh, big hearted way. I love, I absolutely agree. I totally agree. Julie, thank you so much. We could talk. I just think we could really talk for hours about this. We're going to have to have you back on. But I want to know, you know, what's what's coming next? Where can people connect with you? 
I'm on LinkedIn and I don't really, honestly, I've tried to pull back a lot from social because I do a lot of social for my clients and just maintain a work-life balance of sorts. But um, you can find me on LinkedIn. I do have a website and uh, I'm sure you will probably put it up with the podcast at some somewhere. And I do offer a free minute 30 consultation, initial conversation. So if you just want to call and talk to me about your pain points and we can see, you know, if we can work together, if it makes a good fit. I don't really have anything per se coming up. I'm just, you know, I've been doing this now for about 18 months and I've had some great success with my clients. And uh, right now I'm just enjoying doing that, you know, helping these clients achieve their their best results. And um, again, I think I have a little bit of a different approach because I have been on both sides and I understand the pains they have because I had those pains as an executive director. And, you know, as a consultant, I think there have, you know, a different level of empathy, maybe because I have worked in the field. You probably feel that as well. And so you can be like, I absolutely understand where you're coming from and, and let me help you. <laughs> my favorite, my favorite quotes from Jerry Maguire, help me help you. <laughs> oh, I love that movie. Okay. That might be my, that might be my weekend movie. I forgot. I almost forgot about that. I love that movie so much. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today, sharing all of these fantastic tips. I know a lot of people are going to want to connect with you. So everyone listening, I will post Julie's information, LinkedIn website, and a link to schedule a 30 minute call with her in the show notes. And thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. I loved it. We'd love to come back. Thank you all. Well, Hey there. I wanted to say thank you for tuning into my show and for listening all the way to the end. If you really enjoyed today's conversation, make sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, and you'll get new episodes downloaded as soon as they come out. I would love if you left me a rating or a review because this tells other people that my podcast is worth listening to. And then me and my guests can reach even more earbuds and create even more impact. So that's pretty much it. I'll be back soon with a brand new episode, but until then, you can find me on Instagram at juliacampbell77. Keep changing the world, you nonprofit unicorn.